If you're not growing, then you're probably not trying new things. If you're not trying new things, you're probably not failing. And I think that failure is a a necessity for success. From Bright Umbrella, this is Control ClickCast. We inspect the web for you. Today, our friend Eric Regan returns to the show, this time to talk about finding success through failure. I'm your host, Leah Alcantara, and I'm joined by my fab co-host, Emily Lewis. Today's episode is sponsored by FosterMade, a versatile web development agency specializing in custom application development, content management systems, and user experience design. Through partnerships with designers, agencies, and organizations, FosterMade is committed to building better digital experiences. Visit fostermade.co to learn more. This episode is also sponsored by PeersConf, a therapeutic gathering of web entrepreneurs. Known for quality content on both the dev and business aspects of web and software and its friendly community, Peers is the best tech event you'll attend this year. Find out more at peersconf.com and register today. We are so excited to have Eric Regan back on the show today. He is a musician turned web developer turned entrepreneur. He co-founded a brand and interactive design studio called Focus Lab about seven years ago. And more recently, he co-founded a second company called Watson Works, which helps people learn to communicate and collaborate better with others. So glad to have you back, Eric. Welcome. Oh, thank you. It's great to be back. So Eric, how's your 2017 going so far? Uh, It's a bit early, but I am excited. It's off to a good start. You know, it's been a while since we spoke, and I was actually kind of curious about what the last topic was uh, when we chatted. And it was it was weird listening to myself because <laughs> in the intro I talked about how I have uh, an awesome wife and daughter and a second child on the way. Well, that second child's now three, and it's like time just flies. So yeah, that was back when um, you talked to us about uh, developing for multiple environments. Yes, yeah, yeah. But yeah, 2017 is off to a fun start. Uh, We've got a lot of uh, a lot of things going on this year that we're trying that are new, and a lot of things we learned from last year as a business that we're excited to kind of double down on. And what's with this uh, Watson Works, this new company? How did that come about? I mean, and why did you need a second company? <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't need it. The idea is that the world needs it. So the that was born out of something that we do at Focus Lab. We, we put a lot of emphasis on uh, communicating with one another, uh, collaborating with one another really well, knowing one another's kind of personalities, and, and um, then also taking that into knowing uh, the personalities and communication styles of our customers just so that we can work better together and work together better. So it was initially going to be something that we kind of wove into um, another product that we already had in place. But then the more my partner Bill and I thought about it, the more it seemed to make sense as just its own separate company. Mm-hmm. It was different enough from what Focus Lab does at its core that we didn't want to make it part of Focus Lab. Um, we've, we don't want to spread ourselves too thin to where we're not effective in the things that we do. So we decided it made more sense to uh, create a second company, a new company with uh, a different person running it. So uh, I don't run the company. Um, I am 
basically an investor and advisor to the company, and so is Bill. And we have a third partner who is, uh, that's basically his full-time job. That's what he does. He's he's building up this new company, Watson Works. And uh, we kind of quietly got it off the ground last year. And now, uh, after kind of it being in place for about a year, uh, we're, we're really kicking it into high gear this year. Uh, our third partner, his name is Andy Cavistan. He, he graduated with his master's degree and uh, now has a uh, that was basically two jobs, you know, trying to start a business and mm-hmm. get a master's degree. Uh, so now that uh, now that he's got that knocked out, this is going to be a, hopefully a pretty fun year for uh, learning and growing that second company. But I definitely did not need a second company, and I don't <laughs> run a second company either. So in that role as an advisor, is it kind of like um, you just literally just offer advice, or do you expect you'll get called into actually work one-on-one with a client or anything? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. So essentially, as we start this thing off, the understanding is that I'll still be on the ground level here and there doing things. Like as an example, I'm building the website stuff uh, right Mm, now myself. Um, And I'm uh, going to one of the services that Watson Works provides is uh, in-person training or consulting on communication and specifically across teams. So we would we'll teach groups of people how to work together better. And I'll go occasionally to those. I'm not doing much of the teaching. I'm more of like a, a teacher's assistant, if you will, just kind of contributing to the conversation. Um, Facilitate. But, yeah. But most of what I'm doing is uh, helping solidify the vision of where this thing's going and Mm. making sure that Andy has the tools he needs to get there. You know, with Focus Lab, even though we're only seven years old, we've we've learned plenty. Mm. We've made plenty of mistakes. And if Bill and I can bring that to the table for the second company, hopefully uh, different mistakes will be learned and they can learn from, uh, you know, the things that the Focus Lab did wrong or just learned over over the years. Um, So it's, it's about the business model ideas and testing, um, encouraging and supporting uh, this third partner, Andy. And um, for now, a little here and there on the ground level, but the idea is that uh, the involvement's pretty minimal uh, in the long run. I love that. It's kind of, it sounds, you know, like it sounds very paying it forward. Yeah, absolutely. And um, really perfect for today's topic, because I think we're going to dive into how you even decided to go this route um, mm-hmm. with with other projects and such. And you mentioned mistakes. So considering the topic of the day is failure, let's just dive right into it. Let's define it for our listeners, because I feel like everyone has their own definition of what this means. What What is failure? How would you define it? Yeah, I mean, at, at its core, I think it's pretty simple to define. It's just... Um not meeting a desired or intended outcome. I think right. it's pretty mm. pretty basically defined. And when this topic came on our radar, because you've actually talked about this, I guess the past couple of years at a couple conferences, and I'm just wondering, have you met anyone who has different definitions from that or very narrow definitions of failure? Yeah, uh, you know, I don't think I've even had the topic of defining failure come up. Interesting. I think, you know, when I'm talking about it, I'll use uh, one of the sponsor's peers as an example. I I, um, talked about failure at peers last year, which is hands down my favorite conference to attend in a year. I was trying to break down uh, potential facades or barriers of what people might perceive of a successful person or a successful company uh, and just Mm -hmm. be really raw and transparent from a stage about my own failures and 
how I dealt with them and encourage people uh, in uh, ways they can deal with failure. So the failure that I've been talking about from a stage is not, you know, I failed to test this thing before I launched a website and it was mm. it was like an email didn't get sent or something. It, it, not little things like uh, failed to, like a silly example I like to use is failing to put on deodorant. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's, that's a form of failure in a way um, because you did not meet a desired or intended outcome. But, mm. you know, when I'm on the stage talking about the kind of stuff and, and even potentially here today, um, the stuff that I try to focus on is, is the failure that really sticks with you, that has an impact on your life that lasts more than a, a day or an hour or even a week. And mm-hmm. when I'm at conferences talking about failure, we're not really defining it. I feel like there's maybe an understanding of what failure could be. And what comes up is more about a person's story, their experience with that deep failure that they were thinking about while I happen to be talking about it. So I haven't really had any different definitions. Um, I haven't sought them out, but they haven't really come up. Yeah, it's one of those things that when you first said, you know, you didn't meet a desired outcome, I was like, huh, I do that all the time. And I don't think of it as failure. (laughs) Like, I often don't meet desired outcomes, but I just shift. So I guess I don't look at it as failure. Failure like seems like such a harsh, bad word as opposed to, it does. you know, it's just, yeah, there's it's just a stigma to the word. It's a, uh, mm-hmm. it's almost, um, inappropriate in a way. I mean, that I, right. I think that failure is just, it's, it's just part of our lives. It's not a big deal. Mm-hmm. Now, some of the fa- things that we fail in or the failures we experience are a lot more, uh, hurtful or impactful than others. Um, but you know, at its core, I, I think I still think that there are um, an overlap between failing to meet a deadline and failing to pay your mortgage uh, right. or make enough money right. to pay your mortgage. So, on the flip side, then, have you heard of any different definitions of success? Like, what about success? How would you define it? Yeah, success is um, you know, if I if I just kind of flip failure on its head and say that technically the antithesis of failure is probably meeting a desired or intended outcome. To me, that's a simple answer. Uh, but success is actually one that I think people vastly differ in their, the way they, they define right. it. Because mm-hmm. um, culturally, we have so many different things and people that we paint as successes or successful. And um, I, I think that there's a, a portion of, I guess, maybe my definition of success that's just missed there. And it's, it's um, the desired or the intended part. You know, I... Mm-hmm. I think that success is one of those things that nobody can define for you, uh, that mm, you have to define mm-hmm. for yourself. So if you see you know, a peer of yours who has um, a company that has you know, 50 people on staff and they make you know, $10 million, $12 million a year, whatever the case is, and like, you, you look at them and you think, man, they are really successful. I am not successful but your goal was just to literally travel the world and make enough money to pay for that, and you're doing exactly that, then you are just as much a success as somebody else who might have had a different desired or intended outcome. So the word success, I think, really needs to be defined by the individual. Then you get into kind of organizational success, and that's where maybe some other people are involved, and you kind of need to be unified on what success is and looks like. But when it comes down to the people individuals, it's it's a very fluid definition that should start with you. I agree. I think in the same way that 
failure has some connotations with it. I think success does as well. And I think your point about comparison, comparison of what success is, comparing your success to another, is I think it's a, a problem in today's society, especially with the prevalence of social media and everyone putting their good foot forward in that. But I agree that I feel like in the same way that failure has connotations, success does too, meaning when I think of the word success, it seems grand in my head, mm -hmm. like a, a big deal as opposed to, you know, oh, I, I managed to do what I planned to do for the week um, in terms of, oh, making sure I got to the gym. I don't ever view that as a success. It's like, oh, I did what I thought I would do. But in a way, it's success. And, and being yeah. able to acknowledge those things is also important as well to see successes even in smaller quote unquote, smaller situations. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about the, the business aspects. You talk about how there's a slightly different tack over organizational success. With that, how would you define what goals, if success is about achieving specific goals, how do you define what goals to pursue for your business? Yeah, I think that is, it's one of those things that starts with much bigger questions, simple questions, but difficult to uh, sometimes answer. So why are you even in business is a good place to start. Mm -hmm. If you don't know why you're in business, why you own a business, why you're a freelancer, then any goal that you set is going to be probably a result of something that you think you're supposed to do because either somebody else is doing it or you read you know, an article about why it makes a good goal or something like that. But if you, if you go you know, big enough picture to think about why you're even in business, why you own a business or why you work for yourself or why you work where you work, uh, then that that's, I think, the more powerful approach to coming up with goals. So you start with, you know, maybe you have a long-term vision or mission for yourself or your family, uh, and that should, in my mind, directly affect uh, your career path and things that you do professionally. And from there, you can start breaking down that longer-term vision or mission into achievable goals that actually relate to that. And if you don't start there, I think that your goals are probably, even if you don't recognize it yet, being shaped by other people and not yourself. When it comes to, I understand the question about, you know, why you're in business, but when it comes to defining those goals, especially since you've been in business for seven years, how do you define the right goals in the sense of, I know there are sometimes I establish goals and I almost start too granular. I almost feel like I should start more um, on like an um, umbrella, um, a theme level mm -hmm. to define the goals and then kind of create objectives within those goals. Sometimes I've done the objectives first and never really had the goal to tie it back to kind of thing. So yeah. how have you gone about that process? Yeah, um, I think that the it's changed over time. Uh, I think uh, in the past five years or so, I've learned, read about, tried a, a few different approaches to actually defining goals and, and aiming for them, some successfully, some not. But the themes that seem to come up every time I'm kind of looking at different ways to do goals is that the goal, first off, I have to be able to relate it to that longer term vision or, or, or mm -hmm. purpose of what I'm doing. And then there's just some criteria that the goal needs for it to be, in my mind, a good goal. Uh, a goal needs to be specific. Um, mm. If it's not specific, then what are you even really aiming for? I think it was um, uh, Zig Ziglar who said, if you uh, fail to plan, then you plan to fail. Mm -hmm. um, so 
planning these goals out um, is a part of avoiding the failure or achieving the success, depending on which lens you're looking through. Uh, but a goal also needs to be measurable. It needs to have a solid time limit on it. So um, huh. in my mind, you know, I've got, uh, if I think about Focus Lab as the organization, we have some long-term plans. If I want to just put a number on it, we'll say five-year plan to be, you know, a certain type of company that operates a certain way. And if I want to figure out how to get there, uh, then I'm going to need to slow down and think about it and maybe even talk to some people who are smarter than me. That's really often the case. And from there, I, I get to decide, okay, well, if, if I want to be here in five years, if I want to be over there in five years, then in the next two or three years, these are the types of changes that I probably need to make in my business. Mm-hmm. And to make these changes, I probably need to do uh, these smaller set of changes. So, you know, maybe kind of what you're describing as goals versus objectives. And if you don't break them them down into things that are specific and things you can measure, things that have a time limit, uh, then your goal your goal is not going to really be uh, likely to to happen. So for me, as as an example, a concrete example, Focus Lab is uh, launching a SaaS app this year, which is directly tied to one of our longer term missions of kind of how we want to shape our company, and launching an app like that has a lot of different things we need to do, which we are breaking down into uh, kind of a project-based set of goals that have measurable things within them and have time limits and things like that. So I don't know if that helped in any way or if that even answered the question. No, I think it's useful to understand that there's a process behind it. It's not just like you sit down and you write it down and that's it. There's discussion and brainstorming Mm -hmm. and but what came to me when you were describing that, I'm curious, do you typically set goals out five years? Do you go beyond that? Is there a point at which you shouldn't plan that far out because it's sort of unrealistic to think you could think that far ahead? Or is that really critical for that long-term goal setting compared to like shorter-term goal setting? Are we talking kind of organizationally or? Yes, okay. business-wise. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I feel like that, that that's going to kind of depend on who you ask. I Focus Lab does not set really long-term goals that are very specific because I feel like that's almost, I don't want to say a waste of time, but there are so many other factors involved that I can't even pretend to predict mm-hmm. uh, that I don't want to get, I don't want to try and create goals that are 10 years away. You know, the uh, traditional business answer is that, yeah, you get, you, you create yourself a little five-year, three-year, five-year, 10-year plan and you work on it. My answer is probably a bit different because, you know, everything that I do at Focus Lab is somehow influenced by me as an individual, not, you know, mm-hmm. the Focus Lab operations director Eric Regan, but just Eric as a, as a person. And a big part of who I am has to do with my faith, for example. Mm-hmm. And that influences how I set goals or don't set goals. And so one of the things that I think might be a little different from some uh, business owners is that I don't actually want to set goals that are that far in advance. Uh, and that's a mm-hmm. totally different topic for a different uh, podcast episode. But I know a lot of people set goals that far out. I am not one of them, and Focus Lab is not one of them. But I know people do it, and some people do it successfully. Uh, but that they probably have more experience than me. <laughs> Leah, I'm curious, before you and I got together, did you do like long-term forecasting goals, things like that with your business? Mm, no, not really. I feel like I had long-term ideas ideas like that was tied to personal actually just like Erica's in what I think 
success means to me in general. But I feel like because there's so many other factors that can affect how you pivot your business or, you know, even my own interests in what I want to do on the web, because there's so it's so vast that mm-hmm. I just have more of a general idea, but I've never sat down and broken down specifically like, okay, so then by X, this should happen. And by X, I think when I was younger, I thought there was a whole bunch of things that I wanted to do. But I feel like in my own philosophy that you can get stuck if you just are too rigid about those types of things and you can actually stunt your growth or your own success level if you're focusing on specific things because there's other opportunities that come up that might be better for you. So I feel like sometimes when you have like a five or 10 year plan, that's just assuming that everything stays the same. Right. And I just, I, I don't think that's realistic, you know, relationship wise, or, uh, I mean, if you spoke to me five years ago, I was still living in Edmonton. I had no idea I was going to move to Seattle and then ending, you know, ending up starting a business with you. Right. Mm-hmm. So no, no, I've never thought about it that way. Whenever I thought about success, For my business, I I wanted my business to succeed, but it was in service for my life to succeed, if that makes Mm. sense. Well, yeah, like Eric was saying, it's got to be based on your own personal definition of this stuff. Right. I think I hear the five-year, I've even heard 10-year before, and neither seem um, to make sense to me. I know you and I sort of set goals for a year. Yes. I mean, we have grand schemes, but (laughs) we have goals for like a year is pretty much as far out as I think makes sense for what we do. But I I think you're right, Eric. I think it really just depends on who you are, what your business is, and and where your strengths lie. You know, maybe setting five-year goals is something that really helps you. Yeah, and if if I could give a more concrete example with Focus Lab, we don't have a timeline on this because I don't have any... I don't know how long this kind of thing should or could take, um, but we want to be a company where our revenue, uh, that 100% of our monthly and annual operating costs are covered by product-based revenue and that our mm-hmm. client services mm-hmm. revenue is icing on the cake. There are a number of different reasons for that, and um, we, 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 want, we would like to do both of those things. Uh, we think we do both well. And um, I don't know, you know, I don't know how many people on staff will need to really get to that point. I don't know how many years I should expect for that to take. I know how long I th- I would like for it to take or not take. <laughs> but um, right. at this point, I couldn't tell you whether that's on a three-year map or a five-year mm-hmm. map or what, uh, what have you. Uh, what I can tell you, though, is that we have that across our company as an aware vision or, or, or milestone that we want to reach. And mm-hmm. we're working towards it because we've broken it down into steps uh, that we think are, are logical. And then we're going outside to other expertise, so other people to say, hey, this is what we want to do. This is how we're currently structure to get there are we missing something that you see or are we doing something a little off that you see Uh, and we just get people who've got more experience than we do to to Mm -hmm. kind of guide us in those ways but it's not you know there's no time limit on that big kind of vision of where we want to go even though we know we want to go there so 
with that in mind, let's just take that example. So you describe goals as having a time frame and being measurable. So when you're describing this, this grander vision, you've mentioned that you had some steps. Are those like milestones that you can measure? How do you know if, if you're heading in that direction, if you haven't really set like a time frame on it? Yeah, that's a, I'm glad you asked that. Um, so, you know, I don't know how long it's going to take me to get to that finish line, but I do know that today my ratio of product to client service revenue is one number. And so maybe this year we're going to aim to get it to a different number and see Mm. if we can hit that goal. If we can hit Mm -hmm. it easily, then we recognize, oh, well, maybe we could grow this a little faster. And if it's really far off, then maybe we were too ambitious in this one step of the path, even though we don't know how long it's going to take us to get all the way to that 100%. You know, what's it going to take us to get into the double digits or into, you know, 20% or something like that. So we know what the steps are should look like uh, to a degree. Mm-hmm. We know how to um, measure a ratio of you know product revenue to client services revenue. So this year we're trying to increase it to a new goal. And that's kind of our measurable goal that gets us to that path. And you know, I imagine that as we get further along that we'll start to get a clearer picture of, okay, now this actually looks like it's 18 months away or it's mm. two and a half years from now or something like that. But for now, it just it's so far away that we don't know how to measure it yet. That makes sense. And I, I feel like also by taking a more measured approach to it, mm-hmm. it's almost like you're setting yourself up for success in the sense that you haven't said, well, in the next year, we're going to do X. You know, you recognize that you don't quite know what the X value is just yet, you know, how long it's going to take to get there. So by not making it a very narrow time frame, you're allowing yourself to find successes within it versus if you said, well, if we haven't done it by one year, then we failed because that was our goal. Right. And, you know, one thing I would add is that if with that approach, let's say we're trying to go from like 10% to 15% of uh, revenue being product-based. If I get to the end of the year and I hit 14%, then technically based on the goal being at 15, I failed, but I've still right. progressed. I'm actually fine with that. Like failure right. does, yeah. not, that does not hurt me in any way. So you would still consider that a failure? Just, I guess, based on the strict definition? Yeah, I would have failed to meet that goal, but I would have hmm. um, succeeded in progressing. Okay, right. good. Right. I like that nuance. You know what this entire conversation reminds me of? is client discussions about project timelines, right? Mm -hmm. Because I feel like what's happening here is defining exactly what the end point is and that making realistic assumptions over what that means and then testing to see if that actually makes sense. Because I feel like what a problem is between agencies and clients and, you know, businesses is that they set arbitrary goals as in, okay, in a year from now, it's got to be this X number of revenue. Why did you decide it's going to take one year? Like, or X revenue. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So it just seems rather arbitrary. And at at this point, it seems like, okay, so here's the bigger vision. Here are the steps to get there. Let's see if we succeed in these original steps and how fast and how easy it was to even achieve that smaller goal and then adjust so that the bigger goal is more achievable. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Is that anything you've had to work with clients on, especially branding? I mean, it's almost 
it's a little bit harder, I think, to define concrete results of like a rebrand or something. Exactly. And so how do you have those types of conversations with clients to set the goals and figure out whether a goal was met or not? Yeah. um, So we have a questionnaire that we that we start with and um, we kind of reinforce some of the things that that are client will tell us in that text-based questionnaire in our kickoff meetings with them and then sometimes continue to bring the topics up throughout our project. And one of the things that we're really, that we put a lot of energy into is, and we still, we're continuing to get better at it, uh, not to imply that we've kind of nailed this thing down, but under, fully understanding somebody's expectations of us. What do they expect us to bring to the table? What do they expect the results to be? In their mind, what have they paid us for? And uh, the more that we can understand these things, the better we can either show the the success along the way or help prepare to measure it at the end. And we're pretty blunt, I guess, maybe is, is not the best word, but we're, we're pretty direct. Yeah, we're pretty direct when it comes to brand work being fairly subjective. So, you know, that there are definitely measurable criteria that certain aspects of a branding uh, engagement have, but it's a lot of subjective work, and there's not a lot that gets measured in a in a branding project with a with a team if it's literally just something that we're doing from a branding perspective. But we we usually take that into other avenues as well that become more measurable, whether it's a um, video stuff and, and it's trying to get people to watch something, or if it's you know website conversions increasing and things like that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's it's it can be tough if you are working with a client who has a certain expectation of results that you are not actually trying to deliver or offering to deliver, um, but it's an unspoken. And so you get you get to a certain milestone or a certain, you know, maybe even a finish line and the client's kind of like, um, so is, this isn't what I, I thought was going to happen. I thought, you know, mm-hmm. that I was going to end up with all these additional followers or likes or my, my sales were going to increase or whatever. And then you have to say, well, we weren't trying to drive traffic to your site. We were actually just trying to make the experience of the site better. Or, you mm-hmm. know, whatever the case is, you, you, seeking out those expectations has been something we've learned a lot about. We've failed a lot at. We've gotten a lot better at and right. uh, I think continue to improve on. Mm-hmm. So in regards to, you know, when things are not working, either internally for Focus Lab or for clients, at what point do you understand that you're failing? As in, this isn't working, let's pivot, change, try another tack. Because I think that's something that's even harder to understand is even if you've broken everything down to smaller goals and everything, how do you know when what you're pursuing is the wrong pursuit? So I think I heard a question I was ready to answer until that last question, that last part of it. How do you know when <laughs> what you're pursuing is the wrong pursuit? That sounds like a really like, like deep question. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to pretend that part wasn't there and I'm just going to go backwards a little bit. So I think that really it comes down to if your stuff is measurable, if, you, if you've broken things down that are measurable, if you have project milestones and you're getting close to the milestone and you recognize that the work is not even close, that's a good indicator that that's not that's going to fail that that actually meeting that deadline is going to is going to fail if you are working towards business goals and if my going back to my example of of revenue ratio of product to services if i'm if i'm in november and i have you know if, if my goal was to get from 10% to 15% uh, and i'm at 11 and it's november then mm. uh, i that's that's a little late in the game to really try and change much to get right. that 11 to 15 um 
And so along the way, if you've got measurable goals, then you should be able to look at them and look at the timeline assigned to it, which might be like a a milestone in a project and just say, okay, at this point, it's Friday and next Friday, I have to show this particular feature to a client, but nothing is working yet. Can I do that by next Friday or am I just way off? Sometimes we have our head down so long that we don't think to look at the progress we're making or not making. So creating a habit of regularly just looking up and just checking the progress of things, assuming that you've made a goal measurable and has a time Mm -hmm. limit on it, then you should be able to see that kind of failure coming. But there are failures, I think, that you don't see coming. You kind of get blindsided by them sometimes. If I could just go off into a a totally non-business context, let's just say that you have... Um, that somebody has a very poor lifestyle when it comes to health. They don't really exercise. They eat really poorly. Um, They might get to an age uh, where that catches up to them and they Mm -hmm. suffer a an intense kind of a medical emergency. That might not have been something that was terribly important to them over time, but looking backwards kind of in hindsight, they may have had control over those decisions. You know, what am I eating? What am I, what's my activity like? And that in my mind is also could be a type of a, a way of failing. I, I intend to live, uh, you know, as long as my body allows me to, but I'm not actually investing in my body in the way that would imply I tend to live, you know, a long life. So I think some failures do sneak up on us if, but, you know, if you're thinking about intentions that we have and picking your head up every once in a while to just take a look at progress or lack of progress, then you should be able to see stuff coming more often than not. I feel like your the word intention is very appropriate here. I feel like to take the analogy back to business, Leah and I would do things like market, let's say with marketing, we would do some marketing stuff or we thought it was marketing, but we weren't intentional about it. We didn't set goals. We defined milestones, but more like deadlines. Like, oh, we just got to get this stuff done. It wasn't get it done and reflect if you had made progress. It was just get stuff done, crank stuff out. So we were feeling productive. We think we're doing stuff. We think we're marketing, but it's only after we decide to be intentional about something and then we find success in it. And then we realized we were failing before. (laughs) We didn't even know we were failing when we were failing because we didn't set goals. We didn't measure we were just doing stuff and it was only when we became intentional and set a goal and found success through it that we realized the previous attempts were essentially failures yeah that's interesting i I can see that i think how many times a year do we say to ourselves why did why are we just now figuring this out i guess at the end of the day as long as we figure it out that's the important point but eric i really i do want to put you on the spot Uh, with that question Mm -hmm. that I put towards you about figuring out what to pursue and whether it's making some sort of sense. So I'm actually going to use an example that you, uh, Focus Lab, has worked on. So I remember you guys years and years ago started Sidecar Mm, for a totally different iteration than it is now. Because I remember at one point... You started it, and then it was completely shuttered, silence for a while. Then a few years later, new life was breathed into it. So at that point, I feel like that's one of the examples of tried to pursue something, didn't work out. Then you decided it was going to work out, but for a different goal. Like, how was that process? Like, how do you decide, you know, how did you decide 
not to pursue it back then and then to reopen it years later. Yeah, that's a um, man that could be an entire uh, hour (laughs) long conversation. Yeah. (laughs) So for some history, I guess Sidecar first came about as an idea for Focus Lab to create CMS add ons and to sell them and to create kind of a a revenue source based on that. Uh, We've done a lot of add on development for Expression Engine, and that was kind of the the focus at the time, was that Sidecar could be the Expression Engine add-on arm of Focus Lab. So what I did is I started talking to a bunch of different uh, add-on developers who were already kind of doing that, people who already made money, sold add-ons, people who just distributed them for free but still supported them, and talked to... If I remember, it was maybe five or six people for pretty ex- long periods of time. I, I mean, I, I basically was interviewing them about their experience in add-on development sales, uh, revenue uh, model, and all this stuff. And Focus Lab was, uh, we had no desire to get away from client services, and we still don't. But we did want to diversify our revenue because that just was a, a healthy practice, something that we knew would be uh, beneficial to us in some way. So to not just have to rely on a client project every single or client projects every single uh, day of the year. So in the research phase, I noticed how many developers were dissatisfied with their own operation uh, and how it was performing or how profitable it was versus how profitable they wanted it to be, um, what different um, expectations were of customers and what they felt should have been a more appropriate expectation. Um, So I got really, I got a pretty clear picture during this research phase that I did not want to start an add-on business. The biggest thing that it came down to was if we started one, I wanted it to be uh, basically the gold standard of dependable software, really well-documented software, pleasure-to-use software, and then support to be just top-notch. And for support to be top-notch, in my mind, as a customer, I need to be getting responses really quickly. Mm -hmm. And what it came down to were these two things. The model seemed less than favorable, the business model side of it, specifically around trying to do it just with Expression Engine and what the Expression Engine market was used to at the time. And then the way that I wanted support to function, it was going to be expensive. And it also did not align with my own goals at home. Mm -hmm. I knew that basically at the size of our company at this time, it was maybe six, seven people, that pretty much I would be the person responding to support requests Mm. whenever they came through. And I, as a customer, like when my support requests get quick attention. uh, And I wanted, again, to be that gold standard. But to be that gold standard, I would have needed uh, a bigger, basically, support team to make that happen, almost segmented off in different hours of the day. And we didn't didn't have that. Uh, We didn't have the ability to do that. And I wasn't willing to provide that uh, and take away from family time. So during that research phase, we just decided, okay, this is not a good idea for us. It might be a good idea for other people, but the way we would want to do this, we can't do this. Focus Lab is relied upon by a number of staff. And within those staff members, we've got family members who also kind of rely on the income. And this is a kind of a risky thing to try. And it's just not, it's not the right time. So we're, we're not, it's not the right time or the right model. 
So we tabled it, but we loved the name. So ah. a couple of years later, we had a new idea that was not add-on related. It wasn't software related at all. It was, in fact, design related. And we kind of revived the name Sidecar, totally went a different direction on the brand side of it. And it is a, a source of product-based revenue right now. And it doesn't require support, basically. The, the support required when you sell a design product is vastly different than the support required when you sell a technology product. So we did that on purpose. If some of the ideas we have for our current sidecar involve support needs that we are unwilling to really offer so we don't do we haven't done those products yet but the products that we do have out are basically you buy them and you can use them and there's almost no documentation needed and it's something that you can't really break across you know one server to another server that stuff's just not applicable with these products so sidecar was an idea a few years ago we recognized we are on a path for failure if we try this, so we didn't try it. And then a few years later, a new idea was birthed, and uh, we we just loved the idea of the name Sidecar and uh, kind of rebirthed that. That's pretty cool. Like, I mean, I think it's interesting that you've done enough research, and I feel like that's something that a lot of us in the design development world kind of don't do because I think we a lot of us get into this industry because we love it and Mm -hmm. we think oh this will just be a nice side thing and then fast forward it it ends up being you know more than we could handle perhaps Mm -hmm. so on and so forth so I think the lesson here is do your research you know in order to help put your company into the right path for success. You need to do your research and maybe do a smaller test before you invest all this time and money and effort and staff into something that isn't actually in line with your overall goals. But one thing that I heard from your entire story there was your emphasis on how this affects your home life mm-hmm. and as well as how it affects your staff's family as well. So, you know, you've spoken about failure in all these conferences and I feel like you've been very open about how work affects your home life. So how do you pursue success in your business while also having a successful slash healthy home life? Oh, that's a good question. I will start by saying I don't always get it right. It's one of those things that's really easy to talk about. And much harder to practice. So I really enjoy making things. I think earlier on in my career, it was making music. And then it became kind of making websites and and software. And at this point, the things that I really enjoy making are like building teams and and just like processes around this whole business stuff. And the point is, I love my work and I love being able to work, going to work. And uh, it's easy for me to default to work if I'm bored. But, you know, I have my approach to most of the business stuff is that it it doesn't actually, for me, it doesn't start the goals, the vision, all that stuff. It doesn't really start with the business. It doesn't start even with Eric. It starts with the other things in my life. And, you know, I mentioned faith earlier. Uh, Family is a close second to that uh, in terms of kind of what impacts the things I do. And I made some commitments to myself and uh, also made some commitments to my wife and kids uh, with this whole business stuff. And my kids don't really understand the commitments. They're too young. But a lot of that has to do with how I'm present and if I'm present. And if I have a desired business outcome that the only way to get to it 
will require some type of presence sacrifice on the family side, that's a really big discussion and decision that I'll be making with my wife. It's not something that we'll take lightly. So at work, I'm not going to just say, you know, this year I'm going to double our revenue this year. That's a big goal, I mean, but this this is the right year for it, so I'm going to go do that. Well, that would be no small feat. And to do that, I would one of the few ways that I know of to do that is to spend more time doing things, but that would really take away from uh, that commitment to my wife and to my kids of being there for them. And honestly, one of the things, I wish I remembered where I heard this, so I cannot take credit for this, but maybe somebody listening will know and can hit me up on Twitter or something, but I really believe that I don't know I don't know whether or not my biggest investment to the world is going to be something I create versus someone I raise. So, I mean what what if what if my biggest investment on in the world is is somebody I raise? Then I I need to actually be in, be present to invest in my children. I need to be and to to do that, I feel like I need strong partner in crime and and that would be my bride. And uh, these things are really important to me. And I've said this to my staff, I've said this to a a number of peers, uh, if, not that I'm anticipating this happening, but if Focus Lab crumbled to the ground today, I'd be fine. I would be distraught, but I would be fine. If my family crumbled to the ground, that would be way, way more impactful on me than than the business. Family is is definitely uh, a much bigger priority to me. And the goals that we set at Focus Lab, if it seems like they are going to require more than I can, than I'm willing to provide, then we just, we adjust them. But at this point, that doesn't happen. And then vice versa, you know, sometimes the things that we, that we want to do at work mean that I come back home and I say, hey, this is something that we want to try and do. And it actually means I might need to travel a little bit more this year. Let's just kind of talk about that. And, and uh, you know, this, there's kind of a, uh, an ebb and flow of uh, a seasonality to where the emphasis is of time. And, you know, you, you hear the, the phrase work-life balance thrown around a lot. I think that's, I don't think that exists. Uh, you have a life. You don't have a work life and a home life. So, you know, th- there's just a seasonality to that. And um, as long as I remain aware of my priorities, then I should be in, in pretty good shape. And I've got a lot of people who love me around me willing to call me on it when I'm not sticking to them. I feel like the point, I don't have kids, but I do feel that the point about, you know, bringing your partner in to what your business goals are, letting them know what's going on is key. That communication is so important for making sure that, like you said, you know, if Bright Umbrella fell apart, I'd be pretty upset, but I'd be far more upset if something happened to my partner or someone I loved, something happened to my home life. And so I feel like one of the things that I do that I hear you do is that communication, that ongoing communication, keeping my partner informed about what I want to do and where he is and where we are in our life and how our personal goals, sometimes we have to, you know, find a way to prioritize them differently depending on what the business goals are. And the same in his life. He doesn't even own his own business, but he has a job that takes up a lot of his time and is very important to him. Mm -hmm. And so I think even just someone, if they're not a business owner, you know, keeping that home life open and everyone knows what's going on and everyone feels like they have a sense of where their significant other stands can also 
not only help you make decisions and take the next steps to do different things, but you just feel also supported that someone understands that, you know, what your priorities are with your business and Leah understands what my priorities are with my personal life, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's the same. That communication is like foundation of it. This reminds me of um, our episode with Carl Smith, actually, when, when Eric mentioned the, there's an ebb and a flow. So sometimes... Yes, you do have to travel a bit more and maybe not see your family as often as you would have liked or ideal. But, you know, maybe that's priority there at that point in time. And then other times it's like, no, we have to say no to certain business things so that you prioritize your family at that time. Because there really is no work-life balance. There is just the ebb and flow and discussion over what needs to be prioritized at this point in time for specific agreed upon reasons yeah i mean a good example that comes to mind for me is there was a conference i really wanted to go to last uh, april or may and it happened to fall on the last week of school for my daughter so i would have been missing her ballet recital i would have Mm. been missing kind of like a closing ceremonies kind of deal Uh, there were multiple things at her end of the year that i would have been missing if i'd gone on this to this event and the event was definitely a nice to have not a must have for our focus lab operations so that was just a an example of where i i really did want to go but that wasn't the order of my priorities uh it wasn't crucial to the focus labs you know living or or success or or whatever and i really wanted to be present for uh the recital and for other things i I want my daughter to remember me being there (laughs) because i was there i feel like if i recall correctly leah carl described it like a triangle and every morning he looks at his triangle that one corner is him personally One corner is his work, professional life, and the other corner is his family. And each day he looks at what the needs are and he turns the pyramid and whatever's at the top gets the, you know, the most attention that day. And so it's it's sort of adjusting to see which is most important on a given day or week or whatever time frame. Yeah, I think that's how he described it. I thought it was really interesting. But I think the emphasis that nothing will be absolutely ideal at each time. And you do have to take a step back and be like, well, what's the point here? Like, what is my priority at this point mm. in time for very specific reasons, right? So I, I think that's very interesting. Now, what I'm curious about is that, you know, we've talked about of different types of failure and defining failure and like mistakes and all those kind of things. But do you think failure is actually necessary for success? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think it was Winston Churchill who said that uh, success is just, I'm probably going to butcher this, but it's going from failure to failure without the loss of enthusiasm. <laughs> and um, I love that. I really like that <laughs> because I think that we all have a lot more failures in whatever size they come in than we do successes. And, you know, I, we talked about how success is defined for each of us by us, hopefully. But I do think that regardless of what it takes for you to get to your success, that uh, an ingredient that we both share in our successes is that we've failed along the way. If you're not failing at, at something, then you're clearly not trying things that you haven't tried before. And that's one of the core needs of any type of growth. I want to be growing in some way, whether it's learning a new thing, try, you know, if it's growing a, you know, the, the easy type of growth to talk about in business would be like revenue or your company size. But, but what about just growing as a communicator? That would be great. Mm-hmm. So, right. you know, if you're not growing, 
then you're probably not trying new things. If you're not trying new things, you're probably not failing. And I think that failure is a, a necessity for success. And I, I really, I know I said this at the beginning, but I almost feel like um, maybe we need to make failure not such a bad word. Yeah. Right. Because, you know, I think about all the things, I, I still do not view any of the missteps of my past as failures. Mm-hmm. They just don't feel like failure as how I've grown up to perceive it as a concept. They just feel like those were the things that had to happen for me to figure out the new way. You know, it's you learn. And so if you can redefine failure, especially if failure Failure for, you know, someone who's listening feels like a, a blow to an ego or, or it they take it personally, like there's something wrong with them. That That's just not the way I think failure should be viewed. I think it, it should be just, you know, that's how you learn. Yeah, you I mean, we, we need to detach failure from us. We are not failure. Right. We may fail along the way. We will fail along the way. We have failed in the past. Uh, but I think the biggest reason that failure is a hard word to use or to claim ownership over or to, to you know, whatever, it's, it's, it's because we tie ourselves to it. So mm-hmm. one of the things that I really learned from and remind myself of when necessary is um, part of the conference talks that, I, that I've been doing is that uh, failure is an event, not a person. And mm, I right. think that one of the reasons that the word that. feels so bad is that so many of us think that we are failures, but that's not the case at all. Um, you are not a failure. You just failed. So knowing that failure is an event and not a person, and that's a Zig Ziglar quote, by the way. I love Zig Ziglar. Buckets, wise things into tiny little statements and it's amazing. If you can acknowledge that failure is an event and that it's not you as a person, then that word starts to lose a bit of the stigma. Mm-hmm. You know what's interesting is as you're talking, actually this reminds me of an article. I don't remember the actual article. If I do find it, it'll be in the show notes. But defining failure as a person is actually a modern construct mm-hmm. that before the industrial revolution, nobody like you can define something as failing like a you know, machine has had a failure, but no one ever defined a human being as a failure. And that because of this modern construct of a person being a failure that has affected a lot of people in how they pursue life or career goals. Hmm. Right. So I, I just find it interesting that because it's a modern construct, it's possibly not something that's even natural for humans to think about as opposed to a learned a learned perception or concept. So the reason why I'm bringing this up is that if it's something that's learned, then you can learn not to think about, you know, events and certain things as a part of yourself as well. Yeah, I'd love to read that wherever that is. You know, Eric, I'm curious, do you feel the same way about the word success? Like an event can be a success, but a person can't be a success? Yeah. So I think that those two things are directly tied and I hate to be Mr. Quotastic today, but I like quoting people who are smarter than me. And so I'm going to go back to Winston Churchill again, because another guy who says a lot of smart things, or I guess I should say said a lot of smart things. But one of the things that he said is that success isn't final and that failure isn't fatal. And Mm -hmm. I think that in the same way that I cannot call myself a failure, I can also not call myself a success. I may have had a Mm -hmm. success. I may have been successful in a thing, but I in myself am not a success. Uh, You are not a success. Uh, just, Just doesn't seem to jive. So, yeah, I think you're spot on. I love that. I think redefining how we perceive it. I think that's really an important part. And almost my head is thinking that failure and success in a way are they're just 
different sides of a single coin. They're all one thing. You need one to have the other in a way. Right. Yeah. To have perspective, right? Exactly. Yeah. So what advice would you give to anyone who has faced or is currently facing failure? So I'm going to assume that we're kind of talking about that tougher failure uh, because the advice could vary based on what's going on. But if it's that really tough stuff, the first thing I guess I would say to somebody who is currently facing that is simply that statement from Zig Ziglar that failure is an event. It is not a person. If you are currently just in the thick of that failure, don't just point inward and say that you are a failure. You may have contributed to getting there. I have contributed to getting to some not fun failures in my life, but that didn't make me a failure. So look for the people around you who can love you, support you, and remind you that you are not failure, but failure is an event, and just work out of it. It's going to be hard, probably, but it is worthwhile. There is another side. If you're somebody who has not really faced that failure, maybe you're, I guess, just young enough to have not hit something really bad <laughs> or fortunate enough to have not hit uh, a, a deep failure, I would just say still remember that when that kind of thing happens, that it's not you as a as at your core. It, it was an event. And then knowing that failure can have such a deep impact on somebody just be aware of those around you who might be going through something like that. Yeah. They might need you to be their support in that time. Right. And if you've already been through it and you're on the other side, then you're even more prone to that awareness and just be there for one another. That's one of the things that I love so dearly about peers as a conference is that it's such it's, it's an event that somehow manages to fuse learning and growing as a person with the gaining of support from your peers, your friends who have been there, done that, maybe can warn you about something that you don't see coming or can support you through something or teach you after they've been through something. And like that, that event is the epitome of this type of, of supporting one another. And it's just in there right in the name, peers. So... Yeah, if you're going, if you haven't gone through something like that, just, you know, it it can happen. If it hasn't happened yet, then just be ready if it does. But support, support those around you because Mm -hmm. there are some things that we go through that we can't, we just can't do, uh, we can't carry on our own. And sometimes, sometimes people don't know how to ask for that help. So just be aware of, of when you should uh, just go and help somebody out. All right. Well, so that was advice for someone who is facing failure. What would advice would you give to someone who is doing well currently on the upswing? I think it just kind of comes back to acknowledging that you aren't invincible. You're not a success. You, you may have been successful, <laughs> right. which is awesome. Congrats. High five. But it just don't assume that's just who you are. And uh, be ready to try and repeat your success. Uh, be ready to maybe shift a little bit from feeling like that success to learning some hard lessons. But, you know, I just like the way that Churchill put it, success is not final. It's not over. So you never really know what could happen next. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think the one thing I would love to add to that for our listeners, just, and this is again, you know, learning from your mistakes from the past, is when you are finding success, try and look at it reflectively. Like look back and try and see what did you do right? Did you ask someone who's smarter than you something? Did you reach out to someone else? Was there something you did that kind of helped you get, find that success that you could replicate or make a part of other things that you may do, whether it's professional or personal? Yeah. And I think another question that you could ask yourself is, and this is something that is really hard to ask yourself. You might need some outside perspective, but were you successful 
because of you or in spite of you. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, Very I good. I mean, it's not mm-hmm. like if, if I look at myself, if I look at Focus Lab and our growth over the years, there's absolutely no way that I could say that I did this. Uh, there were so many people involved. And what if, what if those people and the circumstances were just right so that the success was in spite of Eric? In, in spite of right, Eric's shortcomings right. or decisions or, you know, whatever. I'm just kind of being a little dramatic, but just consider that. If you've been successful once with something, um, that's cool. Now, let's do it again and see if it was mm-hmm. if it was actually, you know, how much of it was you or how much of it was things that you did. And then I think, Emily, what you said is, is really important. If, if you... You know, a lot of times we look at a failure and we kind of try to dissect it and say, okay, let me, let's work backwards. Let's see what we did wrong so that we don't mm-hmm. do it again. But with success, we don't often enough look backwards and say, what did we do right so we can do it again? I think I'm going to add my two cents and, you know, just jumping on you guys about success is about defining goals. So you can think you're being successful, like how Emily and I used to blog with no <laughs> point, And because our short defined goal was blog get it on deadline, that's success. (laughs) So we could think we're actually being successful in marketing when it's absolutely not because we're pursuing the wrong goals and defining the wrong meaning of success. Hmm. So my advice for anyone who thinks they're on a upswing and I'm glad that's happening, reflect and see what you're actually being successful in. Are you successful at being busy or are you successful? <laughs> right. Are you successful in actually growing your business, having a better life for you and your family, et cetera, and so forth? Right? Because again, Emily and I were successful in blogging, <laughs> <laughs> right? Right. But that doesn't mean we were actually marketing properly. <laughs> I love this conversation for the start of the year. I think mm. it, you know set everyone's minds to you know thinking about themselves, their personal lives, and their professional lives just a little bit differently. So that we can head into the new year, you know, feeling that we have some optimism about how we're going to, you know, manage successes and failures. Absolutely. But before we finish up, we've got our rapid fire 10 questions so our Mm. listeners can get to know you a bit better. Are you ready, Pressure's on. Yes. Okay. First question. Introvert or extrovert? Introvert. All right. The power is going to be out for the next week. What food from the fridge do you eat first? Uh, pineapples. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favorite website for fun? For fun, I don't associate websites with fun very often these days. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I guess for fun would be my hobbies. Right now, I'm learning a lot about woodworking, so uh, woodworking forums. What's the last thing you read? The last thing I read, uh, Warren Buffett speaks. What's the best piece of professional advice you've ever received? Failure is an event, not a person. What's the worst piece of professional advice you've received? I don't keep track of it. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) What's your favorite color? Blue. If you could take us to one restaurant in your town, where would we go? Food is not important in my life other than consuming it. I'm not not the best person to ask. Probably a new spot called The Atlantic only because we were related to it launching. Cool. Hmm. What's your favorite board game? Hungry Hungry Hippos? I don't I don't know. Oh, awesome. <laughs> all right, last question. Hulu or Netflix? Uh, Netflix. Awesome. So that's all the time we have for today. Thanks for coming back on the show, Eric. Awesome. It was great to be back, and uh, I appreciate the opportunity. It's good chatting with you. In case our listeners want to follow up with you, where can they find you online? 
Yeah, online. It's uh, Twitter, Facebook, all the social stuff. Uh, the the username is just Eric Regan, E-R-I-K-R-E-A-G-A-N. And I have a little newsletter that I write occasionally. If you, I don't have a site that it goes on right now, but you can just find that under my Twitter bio. But yeah, it's just Eric Regan at all the different socials. Great. Thanks again for joining us today. This was a great conversation. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Control Click is produced by Bright Umbrella, a web services agency obsessed with happy clients. Today's podcast would not be possible without the support of this episode's sponsors. Thank you, Foster Maid and the Pierce Conference. We'd also like to thank our partners, Arcus Tech and DevOT. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. If you want to know more about Control Click, make sure you follow us on Twitter at ControlClickCast or visit our website, ControlClickCast.com. And if you liked this episode, please give us a review on Stitcher or iTunes or both. And if you really like this episode, consider donating to the show. Links are in our show notes and on our site. Don't forget to tune in to our next episode when Leia and I are going to kick off a Control Click series this year. We're going to do a few episodes aimed at demystifying what we do for clients, starting next month with a client-friendly chat about web design. Be sure to check out controlclickcast.com slash schedule for more upcoming topics. This is Leia Alcantara and Emily Lewis signing off for Control Clickcast. See you next time. Cheers.